This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. Alrighty, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast. So, uh, what we're going to be targeting this week is actually a question that was raised by one of the patrons, which, in light of all the old school reserve list surge, everything, basically, like, what you really, what we really look for when we're targeting old school and the reserve list staples for EDH or playability, like, what makes a good spec on this stuff? Uh, so we've got a few different headlines we're going to go through and, you know, express our opinions. So let's yep. take it away. Yep. Uh, this is going to be part one of two, uh, just because yes. the, the topic overall is pretty dense and we don't want to put like an hour and a half episode out that's uh, all topic because yeah. that gets boring real quick. So uh, the first thing we want to talk about um, when we're looking at uh, old school or reservist uh, EDH playables, staples, if you want to look at them that way, is um, you know, what... In particular, do you look for? Is it something like a low-hanging fruit? Is is it a card whose floor is currently low but has this, has an extremely high ceiling, or is it based on price history? Is, has the card been too flat for too long based on utility? Is the card currently seeing an uptick with the possibility that once demand, uh, sorry, basically yeah, once demand pulls as many copies as they can out of the market, the price eventually goes up, so you're able to restock at your own price on TCG Player or sell it to buy lists, and just kind of discuss that that first uh, bullet point. And I've kind of broken this out into two different pieces, one for reserveless cards and one for old school cards, because when I look at this stuff, it is very different for me. Yeah. Um, because as you'll look at the reservalist versus some of the cards that are popular in old school, you'll notice that while there is disparate power level between a lot of what's going on in those two avenues, they still function extremely differently and oftentimes independently from uh, one another. So, you- For me, I'm, you know, as some of my picks have dictated recently, Emberwild Caliph being a prime example. Look, it's on the reserve list. It's going to go up. Who yep. cares? Like, dump whatever at it. You can't lose money because at this point, the FOMO on it is so real on that stuff mm-hmm. that it's difficult to miss. Yep. It, it's like literally grant, granted a, you know, five year period. There is 0% chance you don't make money on these cards. Um, now, I think. Are some things better than others? Obviously, yeah. You know, yeah. if you've got a price history of a card like Grim Feast, which I picked very early on on the cast, and we've seen multiple surges now since. Uh, looking at the stocks graph, there was one in 2018, one in mid 2020, and we're in the middle of another one now. This has price history. So to me, if this tanks again after this surge, which granted the last couple surges saw floor set mm-hmm. at about 25% less than the surge. Yep. So if we see a new floor set, great, get it on the floor. It's going to gain long term. It's just going to gain it a little bit faster than something like an Emberwild Caliph. Yep. That said, Emberwild being a low-hanging fruit, percentage-wise, the ceiling on that seems a lot higher to me. So that's one that I may be willing to like go super deep on. And be like, all right, I've got 200 copies of Emberwild Caliph. What pays off for Sarkin's Unsealing or Emberwild Caliph? I bet you it's Emberwild Caliph, Caliph, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
when it comes to reserve list stuff, I, I function differently, and, and not because I don't think that low-hanging fruit aren't where you want to be, or that you won't make money on reserve list cards. I like to see cards that have immediate utility, so I want them to be eminently playable because something was just released, or maybe they're they're overlooked. And a good example of uh, the first card, or the first thing, is uh, Second Chance. Yeah. So let me bring this up. So Second Chance falls into the same category of cards that you were picking a couple of weeks ago, where once there's a trigger within the game itself, you can then sacrifice the enchantment to do X, Y, or Z. In the case of Second Chance, it's take an extra turn. So Second Chance, as you can see on stocks, just kind of sawtooth for a really long time before eventually going up. And the, the, the reason for this pick and the impetus for the raise in price is the release of um, Hall of Heliod's Generosity a card from Modern Horizons that basically allows you to just take infinite turns with Second Chance because you just keep putting it on top of your library. This is Volrath's Stronghold for enchantments, and Second Chance is what allows you to build to craft a game-winning state. So that's what I'm looking for. I don't just want synergies. Uh, I want cards that actually can you know, win the game. Another example is Paradigm Shift. Paradigm Shift another reserveless card that just kind of sat around. We did see a bump in uh, 2018, and then it did nothing until we got Thassa's Oracle, and now it's through the roof because it's a two-card combo with Thassa's Oracle. You, it's another you know, um, arrow in that quiver. They're, it's a mono-blue combo, so it can slide into any deck where you want to play Thassa's Oracle, be it two-color, three-color, one-color, what have you. And these are cards that I like over something like Wall of Kelp, which is our perennial whipping boy, because that's a synergistic card. It's unnecessary to the strategy. And while it does provide returns, they're generally fleeting because you have to be in and out quickly. And the long-term gains on something like Wall of Kelp, while they're there, will not be as great as cards that, to me, have this kind of utility and can craft, you know, winning uh, board states from small interactions. Yeah. yeah. So there's that, and then my second category, and this one is a lot more like touchy feely, is uh, our iconic cards. So yeah. for a while, Baron Sangir sat and did nothing, like literal nothing, forever. It was what is it? Yeah, two dollar a card, and then eventually yeah. started to spike with the reserve list push. And it's not like we got a whole bunch of new bunch of vampires that you know Baron Sengir floats into. Baron Sengir is just an iconic card from the beginning of the game. It harkens back to a piece of nostalgia. It's not really played anywhere, even within EDH. It's a very light play. But the idea that this card was at two dollars on the reserve list had nostalgia and is iconic to the game is kind of just. Uh, an oversight if you weren't going yeah. to buy into this. Comparatively speaking, something like Boris Devil Boon does not really have that bit of iconography behind it, but has a real price because of what we're seeing right now with um, the Legends bump. So yeah. I would not have picked Boris Devil Boon because of what this card represents and a number of the other cards from Legends that we did talk about, Jacques Lever, etc., that really have no other power to them beyond what's lent from being on the reserve list compared to something like Baron Sangir. So that's what I'm looking for. Like, Baron Sangir was a low-hanging fruit option, but with that bit of you know mystique around it. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too that a little bit of the bump played into the new Baron Sanger that we got. Uh, independent of that, yep. though, it's still not seeing a whole lot of play. So it's it's one of those like it's iconic and it's iconic from a time that not a lot of the current audience played during. But when eyes are drawn to it and it's like, oh, this is an older version of this card, 
little Timmy sees it and says, well, I want both Baron Sengers at the same time and just buys it. And you combine that with the reserve list factor into it. And of course, again, it's a guaranteed way to make money. I, you know, it's, it's as close as it gets to a sure thing in magic. Absolutely. And so for me, when I'm looking at the reserve list and I'm looking at what I want to pick from there, what I want to spec on, that's really what I'm I'm looking for. I'm not looking to say, okay, well, this is underserved and creates this great piece of, you know, strategery or it slots into something. Um, man, what's the, the card that makes the Sand Warriors that's worth like infinite money right now? Hasazan Tamar. Yeah. Hasazan Tamar makes tokens that are Sand Space Warriors. They have that creature type as well. Sand yep. and Warrior. And it is super unique in what it does, but it's not the greatest general in that slot. It just has an infinite price because of reserveless charm, essentially. Yep. Um, and it's it's a unique card, and it's you know it doesn't have the iconic thing, but it does have the reserveless going for it yep. and legends bump. Yep. Which, as an aside, something else to look for is as these reserveless weights hit you know, what's coming next. And we talked about it in a previous episode when I said, you know, you, you've got this like middle ground mm-hmm. of like a Mirage Weatherlight block that hadn't really been hit at that time. And now all of a sudden these cards are getting hit in force. So if you see these cycles go through and you can get ahead of them, it's another good way to make your margin. Yep. Uh, more on the, you know, Weatherlight surge later, but that's, that's an important aside that, you know, Legends goes through periods where it does jump. Yep. And first you'll see Chains and Tabernacle and all the big, these, yeah. like, yeah, the, the big, big ones cards. jump. But you'll see, you know, Weatherlight and Mirage follow oh, along. Hey, bud. All right, let's go, Fleabag. <laughs> so when it comes to uh, old-school non-reserve list cards, does your methodology methodology change at all, or do you kind of stick to the same thing? So for old-school, it's less about sure thing and more about where can I make money. So it's a lot more about the playability, uh, similar to what you said. You know, it's not just because JMA Tome sees play in old school doesn't mean I'm going to target that card. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's not that it has playability outside of old school. So in that case, I actually there's some friends of mine that play a lot of old school and I'll lean on them. Honestly, I'll say, look, this card's you know, the deck is super popular in the meta right now. Do any of those cards like do you think they'll see play elsewhere? Ninety percent of the time they're like. Nah, man, not really. Yep. There's just more efficient ways to do that. That said, there are cards in old school that do have a little bit of financial viability that I'll target. Shivan Dragon is a key one. You know, it's it holds that icon status. Yep. And it was printed in corset after corset after corset in those, like, learner decks. And then all of a sudden it stopped printing. And that was this huge deal that all of a sudden people started buying. And you saw a little bit of a bump in Shivan Dragon. So on old school, I look much more for playability and, you know, similar to Hall of Heliod's generosity or, you know, think twice. What's a card that's played here mm-hmm. that's really only one or two cards away from being huge okay. outside of OS? And that's kind of what I target. Yep. So I look for, with old school cards in particular, not for old school, but for EDH, uh, efficient spells. So I yeah. want efficiency. And for me, the... Largest spec I have uh, on an old school card that isn't on the reserve list is actually Soul Exchange from Fallen Empires. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and we just see it be flat for a while, and you, you say, okay, well, well, why Soul Exchange? And the reason I like Soul Exchange is this is a reanimation spell that costs two, like Exhum, but instead of being 
a parallel effect like Exume, where you and an opponent reanimate a creature. This asks you to exile a creature, and it doesn't specify non-token. So you exile a creature, and then you reanimate another creature from your graveyard. And then there's the clause of put a plus two plus two counter on this creature if the creature sacrificed was a thrall. So when we got Commander Legends and everybody was looking at Thrall Champion, which is on the reserve list as a spec for that, I was going through some odds and end cards that had the word Thrall. I didn't care about Kobolds. And I came up with Soul Exchange. And this is a super efficient reanimation spell. It just requires that starter. And yeah. I think this is a card that has huge playability throughout the entirety of the EDH format. Yes, having a creature in play to sacrifice is a much larger ask than just having one in your graveyard, but it's not that uncommon that you should be able to activate the spell shortly after turn two. Now, compare this... Now the, the price on this is sense compared to something like Eater of the Dead, which is a card from uh, the Dark. Both of these were uncommons, I believe. And either Eater of the Dead is not on the reserve list, but Eater of the Dead does one thing and one thing only. It commands a $15 price tag. Eater of the yep. Dead allows you to combo out with a mill deck, be it self-mill or... Uh, uh, milling an opponent out thanks to Fainax. You just activate Eater of the Dead using Fainax's ability to mill to start the mill chain, and then you use Eater of the Dead's activated ability to remove a creature card from a graveyard to untap it. So that's infinite mill. You can mill the table out right there. Now, the problem is with these two cards, Eater of the Dead, like I said, only does one thing and one thing only. Soul Exchange has much wider applications. So I see Soul Exchange as a much more efficient card that can play across the format. And I'm happy sinking, I think it was like quarters into the spell when Commander Legends released to buy Night Infinite Quantity and sit on it. And like I said, it's really the only card I've done that with for old school. But as we continue to look back at that era, that's what I'm going to be looking for is efficiencies and commonalities between what cards are doing and what's popular in the format. And I think that's important because old school is one of the most unique formats in Magic because the interaction there is, you know, you look at existing decks from back then, right? And those more or less still exist today, but they have modern deck building applied to them. So there's a lot more opportunity that even if you were alive and playing then, you might not necessarily see without taking an in-depth analysis of like, all right, well, you know, now that we understand even what virtual card advantage is, how much better is a card like Sylvan Library from back then? Yep. And it's, it's worth looking into, and I think Soul Exchange is a prime example of like, this is a card that is incredibly efficient by modern deck building standards. Yep and back then may not have been seen as a good, powerful card. Yeah, uh, the cost of creatures was fairly prohibitive back then, so having a board state where it was worthwhile to bring something large enough back was probably not really what you were approaching when playing this game. And you think about it with Fallen Empires, you know, what are you going to be bringing back that's big enough? And you look at, okay, you have Juzem, you have Shivan, you have Sarah Sangir, and that's really it. I can't think of many more creatures um, with the best art ever in Magic. Evan Prater. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You have Prater and um, the 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 blue gin and the green gin. Yeah. Mahamat, not Mahamati. Um, Ernum and Serendipafreet. You know, yep. these are like highly efficient cards you can get back. Are you going to be reanimating reanimating it though? No, probably not. But you know. This is a card that exists in the old school environment. It falls under that umbrella, though it's in Fallen Empire, so it's outside of a lot of the rule sets, but it does have very real play in EDH. It has very real applications outside of just a generic Thrall deck in, in yeah. EDH. And so that that's what I look for, which is why I don't really spec a lot on 
cards from the old school era that aren't reserve list. It's very difficult to find a lot of these high efficient cards, highly efficient cards that don't already have a high price tag. So, you know, you leaned on Sylvan Library, look at Concordant Crossroads. That card, you know, a global enchantment that gives all creatures haste for one green, both the Legends and the, is it Chronicles or Fifth? One of the, one of the printings, they're both like a hundred some dollars now. Yeah. You know, for, for that card, because it is extremely efficient at what it does. And to find these efficiencies takes time. And generally speaking, they will have a real price tag attached to them. So it's difficult to do this kind of speculation in, in my experience. But yeah. Uh, moving from that, you know, where are you looking to, to, to pick up cards when you're looking at uh, reserve list or old school stuff? So, I mean, obviously there's the global TCG marketplace. That's a thing, TCG player, MKM. One of the things I do first though, is I'll put a buying post or scour Facebook groups. Because what I like to do with these cards is hit them in the places where supply won't be noticed first. Okay. Because long-term, I feel like that's a little bit better. Because especially when dealing with reserve list, and especially when dealing with reserve list staples that see play in EDH, FOMO is absurd with these cards. Mm -hmm. So if you go in and you buy a bunch of them, well, you know, guess what? Unfortunately, you're going to double your price overnight and probably see a decent amount of those get canceled on you, mm -hmm. which is obviously not great. Um, prime example, granted this is not reserveless, when hitting planar collapse recently, uh, one of the sellers canceled on me because I bought out up to $100. Well, they canceled and immediately listed for $150 and haven't sold a single copy since. Anyways, uh, I like hitting those places first because generally speaking, you're not going to trigger FOMO. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you can affect the supply, if nothing else, without people really noticing. And I'm worried about that. So what I'll do is probably for about a week, hit up Facebook. Then the first thing I do is hit up Card Kingdom and Abu. And the reason I do that, and this is like literally the series I'll go through, mm -hmm. is because their prices are on an algorithm based on TCG. So I want to hit TCG last because you hit them first and sell out of stock. Their buy prices will stay where they are. Then you hit TCG and that's when their buy prices start to shift. So if you want to get a quick flip on it, you can. Uh, generally, that's where I look, how I look. Um, I think that Card Kingdom is one that you have to keep an eye on because they do gatekeep, which Abu does as well. So what they'll do is they'll only let you buy, I think, eight of a rare yes. after it's released. Like pre-release, you can only buy four, but after that, you can buy eight of a rare. They may have more than eight, what they'll do is they'll sell those eight and then relist eight at a percentage above that, like clockwork. And that's basically their algorithm to prevent buyouts. Yep. Now, a lot of times on the reserve list stuff, they just don't have the quantity for it to really matter that much. And that's one of the reasons I like to hit there first. Mm -hmm. um, I generally try to avoid MKM, uh, especially when it comes to old school, because old school lives in Europe by and large. And, uh, that's where you're going to have inflated prices and it's going to be harder to make a margin. Yep. So just what I keep an eye out for. What about you? How do you go? Uh, a lot of that is actually fairly similar. However, I start outside the U.S. I start with okay. Japan and I start with uh, European marketplaces um, uh, because 
I'm looking at EDH cards, and even though they're reserve list, as long as there's no overlap between EDH and old school or other constructed yeah. formats, it it was and can still be easier to pull quantity from outside of not just the U.S. but North America. Oftentimes, um, you know this. This does mean that I do have to use an intermediary in the EU to bundle everything and ship it, but generally speaking, that's going to be worth it. Um, yeah. Really, rarely do I actually have the ability to buy uh, EDH reserveless specs in quantity within the US. Uh, as you mentioned, it's very hard to find on CK, etc. but I do check TCG, Troll, and uh, Card Kingdom because for the most part, that's where the largest quantities uh, for a lot of the lower hanging uh, specs that I'm looking at exist. CK limits you to eight on rares. TCG player, you can oftentimes bundle a couple things, and Troll just lists, lists everything if they have it, so it just makes it a, a quick and easy check. Um, of note, though, you mentioned CK does gatekeep on rares to eight, but if you're looking for uncommons or commons, they just, I think, list either 20 or however many they have. So if you're yeah. looking at, like, Mystic Remora, for instance, there's 20-some up right now. Um, but uh, the reason I start outside the U.S., as I mentioned, is that those are the markets that underserve EDH, for the most part right now. And despite the fact that Japan is kind of coming along with uh, EDH, they ha they're starting to run more events, their format as a whole is not as casual as the uh, the US format or yeah. you know, and the way people play. So it's a lot easier to pull things like uh, Second Chance. This isn't reserveless, but like Penman's Aura was pretty easy to pull out of Japan yeah. uh, for cheap and in comparison. And my timelines for churn on this are always long enough. Usually I'm looking at like a year or more. So the shipping cost and time to receive are rarely a factor. I just need to buy, you know, quantity as easily as possible. Um, and as I mentioned, like I can't really get quantity within the U.S. because it's usually drained or just non-existent. And the best that I can generally do are like bundles or of one to two of from TCG player yeah. or other vendors. And then it's just sitting down and calculating you know, price, you know, cost of good, which includes shipping and taxes, and then see what adds up where and how and what my best avenue for maximum quantity is going to be. For old school, it's a little bit different. I, I actually invert it. I've had my best uh, purchases come from TCG Player in terms of overall quantity because it's just been easier there to find you know people are just listening as much yeah. as they can because they don't have their own sites you know they're not large vendors this is just quantity coming in from bulk buys etc that's just sitting there and so i start with the open marketplace and eventually i'll move to to close the closed marketplaces meaning vendors and i'll usually end up paying less overall as a threshold for free shipping is less on tcg player than a normal vendor it can be anywhere from um five to thirty five dollars depending on what the seller wants to do usually it's around five which is a very easy mark to hit and then once i'm done with tcg player i always check card kingdom because as i mentioned while they do serve edh players if it's a common or uncommon they're going to list as much as they have and they're fairly reliable with their quantities um, yeah the main issue i have is uh, with ck and troll they do offer free shipping but it's a 25 dollar threshold which oftentimes isn't enough to get to because they don't have the quantity so again it comes down to weighing the larger upfront cost on the item itself because they're the closed marketplace i'm paying their prices 
plus shipping and then see what my numbers look like. And if I think it's good enough, then I will extract quantity from those vendors. But it just takes a little more time and a little more uh, math overall. But like I said, I start in the open marketplace and then work my way down. I very rarely look into Japan or MKM for this because oftentimes it's just sometimes so bulk, soul exchange, like so bulk, it just wasn't there. Or it was so yeah. hard to try and get in quantity from MKM that the number of packages I was going to receive, I would have lost my... prohibitive. Exactly. Yeah. I would have lost my ass on the individual shipping for like one to four ofs. Is any of this different for you for foils? Uh, I like to go for foils from the open market. It's not that I trust the open market more for foils. I just like the overall uh, competitive pricing in the open marketplace yeah. for foils. Um, the last foil that I specced on was Essica's Chariot Showcase. Mm. And I yep. don't regret it because they are slightly uh, bent. I, I should be able to get out of those over time as they flatten out at a a, um, a profit. But it's hard to beat companies like the Gaming Co. Yeah. They list such incredible quantity at such low prices that I always start with TCG Player and then work my way out. Troll can also have really good prices for uh, early foils within the lifespan of a set that aren't the talked about cards during spoiler season so again i can lean on essica's chariot the price point at ck and troll for those for that card in particular was very appealing but the mm -hmm. quantity that i was able to pull was not what i wanted so i went with the open marketplace but because that card had not really been talked about that often in spoiler season it only was a couple of weeks later that it was kind of found to be extremely good in the sultai ultimatum deck that their prices were very close to the open market. So for me, I try to, honestly, when I hit foils, I actually try to hit like Haruya first. Mm -hmm. um, they just are incredibly competitive on their English foil prices. Yep. Uh, so I'll always try to go there first. That's just how it works for me. Uh, I think it's worth noting though, that especially on the reserveless foils, it's a lot harder to find your spot uh, because a lot of them now, you know, and I, uh, yeah. a while ago I was like, look, your sub $100 reserveless foils are where it's at. Those will be over $100, and now here we are. I mean, you can't get any of them no, for less yeah. than $100 I, even anymore. I don't muck around with reserveless foils. Just it's too much money to sink into a single copy of a card for me to be yeah. uh, happy with that. I, I think if it is, especially now, because they are all over $100, you know, when they weren't, obviously you could do it. Now it's it's kind of, it's not as sure thing just because of, you know, the liquidity of the card Yep. for me compared to what it used to be. I mean, you know, all things equal. Look, a foil Weatherseed Treefolk is not the same as a foil Radiant Archangel. No. It's not. Even if the prices are the same, they're not the same thing. One of those actually has playability and utility, and the other is a five-mana green 5-3. Five, so you that's where you kind of have to be a little bit choosier on what you're doing. Yep. For me, is if I were to hit reserveless foils, I have to be much more selective in what I'm hitting. I want to hit a card like Palancron. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't want to hit Weatherseed Treefolk. Is Palancron significantly more? Yeah. Yeah, obviously. But it's also actually more liquid despite being significantly more. So 
something that just plays into that and something that I think you need to be mindful of when looking at these cards is this kind of viability uh, with foils is the playability and liquidity is significantly more important mm -hmm. than it is otherwise. Yeah, I, I think if you're going to spec on foils for standard and pre-release time, it's basically the same mentality. You need to look at that yeah. card and evaluate it and ensure that it's good enough to see play either in something like EDH, which is why I bought Essica's Chariot initially, and I also talked about it in our Kaltheim, uh like pre-release show. Yeah. And it, if you're going to be buying reserveless foils, you need to be damn sure that these cards are playable. You know, you're not just buying chaff because it's cheap. If you want to park money, then you can absolutely do that. But if you want to see a faster ROI and a larger ROI, then you're going to need to make sure that these cards actually are viable within the format. So, yeah. Um, I don't think I have much more to really to, to talk over about my method and what I look for. Like I said, it's very much the same thing for me. I just kind of reverse based on uh, stock levels, essentially, yeah. and where I think I can pull. I have tried to do uh, EDH foils from Haruya before, and it has worked out well, though the last time I tried to do that, my, my order got canceled because COVID. So who knows anymore? And I stopped honestly paying attention to the site because I can't uh, extract anything. But yeah. at the same time, if you're able to, uh, because you either live um, outside the U.S. or you have connections that can buy for you from Haruri and then ship your, your product over, don't just throw, uh, flow through the site normally searching for cards. Hit their sales. Yep. Their sales are ridiculous for, for everything. Uh, uh, recently, I've just been seeing a lot of Japanese stuff go up, but oftentimes there will be English mixed in, and you can generally speaking arbitrage pretty easily yeah, almost everything from those sales from from Haruya to whatever your your local scene is be it uh, to actual local players or if you're going to be listing on a market space yeah super, super, it's, super viable. it's definitely something to keep an eye on especially now uh without events if you're servicing a local marketplace it may actually behoove you to have a stock of those like foreign cards that people you know, had easy access to yep. back when we had GPs. So it's definitely, even for the Japanese stuff, worth a check now and then. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, full visibility, I was looking to pull as many ley line of anticipations as I could because they were like 60% uh, USD, yep. uh, both English and Japanese. So I was just going to, to flat buy them out of the, the most recent Corset version. And that's when I learned that I couldn't, they weren't shipping from Japan to the US. Like, Things like that happen all the time because, as I mentioned before, the Japanese EDH environment is not the same as the, the U.S. EDH environment. And so cards that you think are fairly ubiquitous here are not there, and there still exists that opportunity. Yeah. And it's awesome. It is. Picks? Or you got one? Yes. All right. Let's well, do picks. I'll go first since okay. you, start, you did last week. So right. I am revisiting an old pick, uh, and that is Pendro Mists. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you see these spikes come in waves on sets. So you see back in 2018, if you look at the stocks graph, uh, this was actually when the Cabal first hit it. It went up to 20 bucks, and then it slowly petered back down. And then, of course, the reserveless spike in fall of 2020 hit. All of a sudden, Pendril Mist shoots up to $10. And then it craters a little bit, but shoots up to 20 so why am I picking this card on the heels of a spike where it's starting to dip? Well, because again, it's starting to dip. You can buy into the dip. Two, 
look at the price of Tabernacle right now. This is the exact same thing as Tabernacle in an enchantment in blue. It is an incredibly high impact effect. Now, if you look at the price history on some cards from a similar time period, Grim Feast is one that spikes a few times, hits a floor, and like I mentioned, the floor is always about 25% lower. There is no reason in a year we don't see Pendrel Mists at $75 because this ability is incredibly impactful. It's an affordable alternative for people that are in blue that run a run tabernacle, and it's reserve list from a set that had a pretty decent print run, sure. But this has a history, this has a high impact, and this is one of those cards that was bulk forever. So people may have just gotten rid of it. I am sure I threw I don't know how many copies of this card into the dumpster when I would move houses and not want to take half million bulk with me. It happens. Now, looking at stock, currently we're sitting at about, I think it's 98 total listings on TCG. If you filter for LP or near mint, two-thirds of those are LP or near mint. So this is something that's a lot more of a slow burn because... It isn't until the third page that you hit $30 on this card. So this is something where you can periodically buy up a couple copies every few weeks, not trigger FOMO, and just sit on them. Yep. It's a very slow roll, slow burn. You're not going to spike it overnight and then shoot it up to $100 like you could with Planar Collapse a couple weeks ago. You're going to slow burn this one. But I think even getting in at retail now at 30 bucks, or sorry, 22 23 is, is great because long term this card should hit a $50 buy list I would think based on what we're seeing with the reserve list sometime within the next year worst case scenario you will never sell this card for less than $25 nope. not happening and your uh, your delta between car kingdom buy list credit and the TCG player uh, low is about $5 right now so you're going to close in pretty quickly, and Card Kingdom is buying 26 copies, which is a yeah. pretty pretty significant number <clears throat> based on the amount of stock available on the open market itself. So I, it, it's, it still remains a good pick. Eventually it's just going to fall off because these cycles will continue to raise the floor to a, a point where it becomes no longer viable to yeah. you know buy low, sell high, and you're, you basically get to keep re-upping. It's just, you know, we're looking at, what is it, like a, a yearly increases yeah pretty much i have yet to run against uh, play against anybody playing pendrel mists but uh i can't imagine it's going to be a good time so i i will continue to like this card until it prices itself out of uh, the market space but i'm going to move over to something way more casual my spec for the week is dragon tyrant from scourge scourge fucking love that card Dude, it is big <laughs> and dumb it, they don't yep. they they come big and dumber, but there are not many more that are this big or this dumb. No. So looking at Dragon Tyrant, it really doesn't fall into the Dragon Tribal decks just yet. It really goes more into, I like to call it Dragon Combo, or uh, just kind of sneak and sh or sneak attack combo. I'll, and I'll bring up... Um... Get fatties into play. Yeah. So the, the top commander is uh, Zerlin of the Claw, which is basically sneak attack. Perforos, Bronze-Blooded, which is basically just Sneak Attack. Ilhard, the Raised Boar, which is basically, again, just Sneak Attack. And then you see uh, both Ur-Dragons in here. And, and so you, you kind of get this picture that this is a card that you just want to cheat into play. Primarily because it's a 6-6 with Double Strike, uh, Flying Trample, and uh, partly because it has a 4-red upkeep cost. So 
difficult card. So this isn't the biggest dragon out there. If you do a gatherer search for dragons with power greater than six, there's uh, like 15 or plus, but there are only five dragons total in the history of the game with, drug with double strike. And this is one of two dragons with double strike that has power greater than five. The other is Dragon Lord Atarka, right? Everything else with double strike has power like two, three, and four. So uh, this, sl this slots into dragon combo fairly easily or similar del decks, health by, as I mentioned, Zerlin, Perforos, and Ilharg. The Taller Ask is adding this into dragon tribal decks because of the quad red upkeep, as it's a really steep price to pay for a deck that is extremely mana hungry and can win without this card fairly easily, thanks to some of the multicolored offerings within the dragon tribe already. Um, in time, thanks to Dragon's Approach from uh, Strixhaven, we might see a change overall in the approach taken to the Dragon Tribal deck, and we could see an increase in demand as that deck becomes a little more popular. And I'll bring up Dragon's Approach, I realize I didn't have it up. So, uh, this is Dragon's Approach, it's a sorcery from Strix Strixhaven for two and a red. Dragon's Approach deals three damage to each opponent. You may exile Dragon's Approach and four other cards named Dragon's Approach from your graveyard. If you do, search your library for a dragon creature card, put it onto the battlefield, and shuffle. And a deck can contain any number of cards named Dragon's Approach. So this card is actually responsible for a number of the dragon spikes that we saw over the uh, the past week, like Hellkite Tyrant, Hellkite Overlord, and stuff like that. There are a lot of them that went. Dragon Tyrant sits fairly low because everything else goes in the tribal deck. This goes in the sneak attack version of the deck. So... My initial projections for Dragon Tyrant was basically, when I put this on my list around December, probably summer, as we are heading into the Dungeons and Dragons set, because you can't build a Dungeons and Dragons set without dragons. dragons. It's in the name. Or dungeons. Yes. So, I would... When I put this card on here, I expect it to be during that spoiler season. That's when it would pick up. But Dragon's Approach has really kind of sped up our timeline because now we have a way to cheat this thing into play. We can go tutor it up with Dragon's Approach in the sneak attack decks. So my expectation has been reset, and we should see break-even before the D&D set, and we should start seeing gains thereafter. So for right now, it's probably about six to nine uh, to nine months, but we could be seeing things a little faster than that. Uh, no, a note on reprint equity is that with a simplification of various aspects of the game, the upkeep cost on this should crater the reprint equity. And if yeah. we do see it, then I would expect it to be in the D&D Commander sets because red dragons are generally the quote-unquote end-of-campaign level threats. So this could be something in that deck. That's the only point I'd be worried about, is if we see it in that, because Dragon Tyrant isn't like a type of dragon, in D&D, but it certainly is, like you said, the big bad boss at the end of the campaign. Yep. And there has been movement on both Card Kingdom and um, TCG. I realize I skipped over this. In December, Card Kingdom was buying 18 at $1.15. They're now buying uh, 19 at $1.50, so buy has gone up, and the quantity has basically stayed static. On TCG, in December, there were 150 at $1.70, LP or better. Uh, as of last Friday, there were 76 at $1.73. So quantity has dropped overall, but uh, prices stayed about the same, which is kind of quirky to me. Though that just tells me all the low-hanging fruit are gone. People that just had this sitting around and just wanted to get something out of it, they pulled it from the market space. And now yeah. when we filter, our lowest price is about $2. So while the market price is slowly creeping up towards $2, the actual lowest LP copy is two dollars before you add shipping 
So we are seeing just gains on this card slowly over time. Um, as far as like how many I would move in on, I'm not entirely certain. I don't think we get hoisted in the D&D set. And for $2, it seems kind of difficult to not want to buy somewhere between like 4 and 12 and just have a couple sets sitting around. Yeah. We're not going to see a Dragonstorm combo deck with this threat because it doesn't have haste. It's not good enough or something like that. But as far as like casual EDH goes and sneak attack stuff, like I mentioned, this is one of the largest dragons with double strike. It is the second largest dragon with double strike, in fact. And it just ends the game so efficiently from from any of those decks. You can do some wizardry with Braid of Fire and like reduce the upkeep cost on it overall. But I think this is just going to be you know the a haymaker finisher in these decks now and moving forward. I think I think it also you know satisfies the invisibles aspect almost because this is one of those big dumb cards that people just see and like when you're new to the game you yep. see something like that and you're like that's incredible uh, because it seems so powerful mm -hmm. and while it doesn't fit into your combo engine obviously it fits it fits into the cheap big dumb fatties which as we've seen recently especially cheating cards into play is something wizards has really like been trying to promote yep. you know not just with cards like illhard but we've got you know we've gotten more and more efficient with these sneak attack type answers not to mention they're trying to reprint cards like sneak attack whenever they can like show and tell mm -hmm. that do these big impactful swingy plays and i think that long term you know something like this we may see on the list eventually but that's a while down the line yep i mean i don't think we're at any risk of seeing this printed in a list or in a standard print run set you know when you talked about reprint equity and i mentioned the dnd edh decks i literally think it's just edh decks or bust for this card i, I think so too I, I don't think we see it anywhere else no I, it's like i think it really is the the upkeep cost on this despite the fact that it costs 10 uh, this this thing costs eight and two red for a six six right yeah. like and all the keywords put it well above rate but then you also have the upkeep on it, and I think that is the prohibitive factor for the reprint. That's where you're. That's why you're not going to see this upcycled into a Modern Horizons set or any kind of actual draftable set because this card is nigh unplayable in those sets. It has to be yep. something like an EDH set or a theme deck. So and I, who knows? Yeah, I, I think we're safe overall, and we're just waiting on this kind of like casual demand to get there i did think about the invisibles and every time i was thinking about that as I, I was writing my um my notes for this it's like dragon mage or something like that from scourge yeah and actually like there are just better dragons to be playing in front of this so i'm not entirely certain how well this slots into like that kind of casual thing like i mentioned dragon lord atarka has uh or maybe it's just Atarka. I can't remember which one of them has double strike and it's just a bigger dragon overall for less of a cost with less of an upkeep but it doesn't slot into the mono red sneak attack deck where you just want to jam the biggest creatures you can that are the most impactful yeah. and so this is to me not quite an invisibles card it definitely it absolutely has play there don't don't get me wrong i just didn't really kind of take that into consideration when i was thinking about this because there just seems to be more better stuff that doesn't mean that you still can't make the this deck as a kitchen table deck and you know in a 60 card environment you know perforous bronze blood and ilharg are still pretty cheap 
and all you need to do is get this into the graveyard for Ilharp or in hand and Faithless Looting and things like that really do allow you to, to kind of mix and match and get your threats you know, locked away as necessary. So yeah, I can, for sure. I can absolutely see it having play there. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I, I think, I guess I should say it satisfies, like for me, when I was just starting out, I wanted to do big, dumb Oh, absolutely, things. yeah. And like, it, it's a good, like, intro player card. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, very special circumstances, but I think this does satisfy, like, almost the kind of thing where the people that want this card aren't necessarily the ones that are going to show up in your analytics. They may not show up on EDH rec. They may not show up on, you know, MTG top eight or goldfish or yeah. something like that, yeah. but they do exist. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And like I said, a lot of what I was looking at originally was based on the D and D set, not on what could be in Strixhaven and dragon's approach yeah. really does change things overall. It changes the context of how you're going to play either. Like I said, the dragon, uh, combo decks, the uh, mono-red sneak attack, or the dragon, and or the dragon tribal deck. And because yeah. of this shakeup, this is where we can see, or have be presented to us, the opportunity for realistic gains for a card that's been stagnant for a while and now slowly moving. So, yeah. o Overall, like I said, it, it to me, just kind of read as a, a sleeper pick, and I think now sure. now's the time to move in, especially with Dragon's Approach and everybody looking at, like, the top layer of like what's the best things we could do and i'm just down here close to the cellar like well how about this <laughs> and i hey look i love being a speckless slumlord myself yeah so. cellar dweller yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> so come on sarkin's unsealing one day i think that's going to be it for this week and like i said next week is going to be uh the larger of the three uh, points that we want to talk about in regards to specking on old school and reserveless staples for EDH. So, you know, thanks for listening to part one. We'll be back for next week, and you can catch MTG Cabalcast on Twitter or Facebook if you want to talk to us. Otherwise, the podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or whatever that service is. Stitcher, uh, Audible, not SoundCloud, a bunch of stuff. Yeah. We're, we're, we're in it damn near everywhere. Pretty much, yeah. And you can catch us individually on Twitter at Halt, I am Reptar for myself, and you are at Thirsty Sizzler. And we'll see you next week.